What is up, Aztec fans? I am super excited for the season to start, as I know all of you are as well. And so I thought one of the things I could do is create a season preview type of episode where what I do is I look at all the players on the roster and go over some of their strengths and their weaknesses, things of that nature. Uh, Maybe go into the schedule, either some key games or all the games, depending on the time. Uh, We'll see where I'm at when I get there. I figure this episode will be longer because... Um, It's just a lot of information to cover, but I also figure most, if not all the listeners are probably in Southern California where the commutes are horrible. So you'll have some time. Uh, With that being said, let's get to it. The first thing I want to do before getting into anything serious is put out this quick little disclaimer. Uh, When I am looking at these players, especially for new players that are transfers um, or to a lesser extent, high school freshmen or incoming freshmen rather from high school that are coming in, the amount of tape I have to watch is very limited. Uh, What I do is I go onto YouTube and I look up either the player's name or the team that they played for and I try to find whole games that are posted on YouTube. And so for some of these teams, for really most any team, that's really hard to do because you know YouTube doesn't want full games posted on it for one, um, and then a lot of these teams don't have a lot of TV exposure exposure in general, and so it's just hard to find the games. Um, so I try to find at least two games for each player to watch. Um, that way, it's you know it still is a small sample size. It's hard to get a full picture of a player after just watching two games, but it's better than one game. And so I try to find at least two games, and depending on how many minutes the player got, I might go up to three games. Um, It does take a lot of time to go through the games and and break down the film and do all that stuff. But I try to do at least two games. For the players that are returning Aztecs, you know, it's more extensive because I was watching most of the games throughout the whole season. I have tape that I've broken down on them from before, plus I can really grind in and focus on those two games um, for that player as well, but I have more of the general narrative to go off of as well. With transfers, I do have the benefit of looking up things like synergy stats to, to go with uh, the analysis, but it it's by no means conclusive and all-encompassing and anything like that. So I just wanted to get that out of the way. Um, there's definitely mistakes to be made on top of just being human. Like I don't have the best sample size because this stuff does take a long time and it is hard to get access to these videos. Uh, But with that being said, let's get started. Let's start by looking at KJ Fagan. I hope I'm saying that name right. KJ to me profiles as a pass first kind of point guard. The, The main reason I say that is because when I watch tape of him, when he's coming off of the pick and roll, just the way his his body moves and where it looks like his head is looking and stuff like that, it looks like he's looking down the passing lanes for the first option when he's coming off of the pick and roll. Whereas some players, they look like where their head is looking is right towards the basket, and that's their first goal is to score. KJ looks like he's looking at his teammates to see who's open and who he can who he can 
get open by where he positions himself on the basketball court. So that's why I think he's more of a pass-first type of player, which is great because that's definitely something the Aztecs need for this season. The last season, the Aztecs had a player who was a great facilitator was probably Trey Kell, and that was that was the last year they got to the NCAA tournament. And granted, that was two years ago, uh, but still, it's it's something that I think should help a lot. Uh, he is not limited to passing by any means. He's also a good scorer. He uh, he got seventeen and a half points of a game in his last full season. That was in the West Coast Conference, so overall the level of competition was probably less than he would see this year, but it is nothing to be scoffed at nonetheless. He also shot uh, 44% from the field in his last full season, as well as 37% from deep. He is a career 40% shooter from deep, so that is definitely something that will help out the Aztecs a lot, especially because it seems like the way Coach Dutcher wants to play is basically having a four-out system or maybe a three-out depending on the players, but likely a four-out system that's very pick-and-roll heavy where a player can come off a screen and uh, either you know dump it off to the big man, obviously take it to hoop themselves, or the best option being to kick it out to a shooter. And so having somebody who can shoot 40% from deep is a real boon to that. And it, it's just a good, a good fit, especially because most of KJ's shots, I have reason to believe, came from those step-in kind of threes where you're just kind of spotting up on the perimeter, as most college shots do. But he's definitely a good shooter, Um, great at the pick and roll. The one thing I saw is that it seems like his coaches tried to hide him on the defensive end, um, just putting him against players that weren't the, the offensive focus for the other team. Um, which, you know, having one player like that isn't the worst thing in the world, but it it is what it is. He is six one. I don't know what his wingspan is. The coaches at San Diego State all have pretty good defensive reputation, so I'm hoping that's something they can they can scheme around. Um, and KJ's experience should be able to help a lot in that arena as well. But it is what it is. On on his advanced stats, he has a 0.416 POE, which stands for points over expectation. If you guys have been following me a lot, you kind of know what that is. But what it means is if an average level player had the same amount and type of opportunities as this player on the basketball court, this is how many points our player would score relative to that average player. So accounting for offense and defense, KJ Feagan is almost half a point more efficient than the average player. Offensively, it's 1.897. So almost two points per game more efficient than the average player. So offensively, he has it going on. And that's also reflected like in those shooting percentages and all that stuff. That also doesn't count his overall impact on the game. I haven't gone through all the box scores and everything um, to figure out what his impact is. Or not the box score, sorry. The uh, the play-by-plays. Because that takes a lot of time to do. Um even for just one game, it takes a good amount of time, and doing it for the whole season is a lot. 
I'm working on figuring out how to have that process automated so that it can go by faster. I'm, you know, 98% certain there's ways to do it. I'm just not that tech savvy, but enough about that. Um, I don't have his impact stats yet, but his CPOE is great. His, his created points over expectation. That's the offensive end of that stat. His defensive points over expectation is not good. He's almost a point and a half worse than the average player. The defensive side of, of this stat isn't the most accurate and a lot of, uh, I guess I test Twitter would tell you a lot of the, the faults with it. But when you know how to look at it, when you know how to use it as a stat, I think it mitigates a lot of that. Regardless, he's, he's definitely a solid overall player. He's not a two-way player. The stats don't reflect that that I have, and neither did the tape. You know, he can be solid, I guess, on defense, given the right matchup but you definitely shouldn't count on him to be a lockdown defender. That being said, he should more than make up for that with his offense and the impact his offense has with his scoring and his passing and his shooting, the space that will create on the floor, especially with the uh, the new three-point line. That's going to be awesome. It'll be tricky to see if his shooting translates with the new three-point line, with it being moved back further away if his numbers stay in that 37 to 40 percent range hopefully they do as with every player but overall he will be a good starting point guard for this team and I'm excited to see what he can do the next player we will look at is the player I think will be the starting two guard the starting shooting guard for the Aztecs this season and that is Malachi Flynn Malachi Flynn I think on this team is the best player by by far. I think even if um, other players like Devin Watson or Jalen McDaniels or whoever from last year were still on this team, Malachi Flynn would still be the best player. There was even a newspaper article at the very beginning of last year written by Mark Ziegler that said basically it was Malachi Flynn and four bench players scrimmaging against the five Aztec starters and the team led by Malachi Flynn lost by one point on like a desperation shot or something like that. And that's, that's just crazy to me at least. Um, In his last year at Washington state, you know, he averaged about 16 points a game. He averaged 4.3 assists and those, I mean, those numbers are fine. The, it was on a, harder schedule, at least according to the metrics, than what the Aztecs have faced the last couple of years. So there's definitely potential that playing against lesser competition, those numbers can go up. The things that I saw on tape is Malachi likes to shoot the ball. He's he's a score first guard, but more importantly to me, he's a shoot first guard, which is, you know, a little bit different. Malachi for his career has taken almost 58% of his shots from behind the three-point arc. And that's important because there's been uh, studies done that have shown that when it comes to gravity, meaning how, how tight a defender has to guard a player on the perimeter, 
a, the biggest factor is volume. And so even if you're just an average shooter, if you shoot the ball a lot, the players are going to have to guard you more than if you're a great shooter that doesn't shoot the ball very often. And so having a player that shoots the ball from outside that much will generate a lot of gravity. It will generate a lot of spacing for the other players to be able to get to the hoop and make some easy layups. And that being said, Malachi is also about a 36% career shooter from deep. So it's not just the volume that's generating that gravity. Like you generally consider 35% to be average. So he's slightly above average for his career shooting from deep. So he has that going for him. And that's awesome. That being said, Malachi can score from anywhere on the court. And in watching the tape, I saw him hit step backs from the elbow. I saw him hit floaters and reverse-handed layups and all sorts of stuff. This dude is definitely the offensive focus for this team. Like the offense is going to run through Malachi Flynn. KJ might be the primary facilitator, but the offense is going to run through Malachi Flynn. He's going to lead the team in points per game. He, I mean, it's possible he could lead it in assists too. It wouldn't surprise me. I wouldn't predict it, but it wouldn't surprise me. The offense is going to run through Malachi Flynn. He, similarly to KJ, I thought he was, his coaches tried to hide him on defense as well, which isn't the best thing because now you have both of your starting guards that you have to hide on defense in one way or another. Um, like I said, the the coaches at San Diego State are great defensive coaches. That's their reputation, but it does worry me a little bit just from the team construct part of it. But... Also similar to KJ, his offense more than makes up for it. When I go to my POE stats, and you can find these. These are, these are publicly available, and especially during the season, I share them all the time as they get updated. Malachi Flynn's overall POE, so counting offense and defense, is 2.5, which means, once again, with compared to an average player, given the same amount and type of opportunities, Malachi Flynn would score two and a half more points each game than that average player. And two and a half points doesn't sound like much, but when you look across college basketball and see how many points are decided by one or two points a game, it starts to add up. And it's even more impressive when you look at, I have POE stats going back to the 2010-2011 season. And Malachi Flynn's POE ranks third all time, or or at least back to that 2010-2011 season. Number one on that list is Xavier Thames, who had almost a POE of five. His was 4.86, which was really good. Number two is a little bit of an outlier because it was on such a small sample size, but number two was LaBradford Franklin in the 2012-2013 season who had 2.66, but that was on not a very large sample size. I don't think he played a lot of games. There was something weird with this number, so I, I tend to not even count it in some ways. But so just compared to that, like this is in terms of efficiency – If his year at Washington State happened at San Diego State, he would be the third most efficient player all time. Or, I mean, all time 
asterisk back to 2010, 2011, um, which is saying a lot. And so Malachi Flynn is definitely, in my mind, the best player on this team. And his both of his his offense and his defensive metrics are actually positive. His offensive metric is at almost two. His defensive metric is at almost negative 0.5. It's a little over negative 0.5, but that's good on the defense. You want that negative number. It means the opponents are scoring half a point less than an average defensive player would give up. Um, That might be kind of confusing. I'm sorry if it is. But the takeaway is that he's a very efficient basketball player. He doesn't look like the most athletic player. You know, he's not built in the mold of the Aztec teams of the early 2010s where it was get all these athletic and super long players that can defend like crazy and hope they can hit shots he doesn't seem as athletic but he seems very crafty and he's super efficient and I'm very excited to have this kid be an Aztec for the next two years it's going to be great next let's look at Matt Mitchell I think this is going to be a big year for Matt Mitchell He came in as a freshman, as Aztec fans know, and kind of lit it up. And he had a great year as a freshman. So great, in fact, that his freshman year in my POE uh, stats ranks 16th going back to 2010-2011 season. So it's pretty good, right, as a freshman. And he, he just had a great impact on the game. He showed off a lot of skills and abilities as a freshman. It was great. Last year, he was still good. It just, for me at least, it didn't feel quite the same, right? He he definitely showed off a lot of skills. There were some games where he was still able to rain down threes and he was able to bang down low with like Yoli Childs against BYU, which was awesome. Things like that. So he still brought value to the team. It just wasn't quite the same. It wasn't quite as consistent there, there were things like that. I think a big part of that, I don't think this is a hot take by any means, I think a big part of that was his body, right? And and Matt Mitchell, he, he would tell you himself, he was playing a little bit heavier than would have been ideal. I think he was listed at 235 or 240, somewhere around there. Um, and... He he was on a on a six six frame, and it it wasn't the best kind of weight that you would that you would want either. You know, I think you got players like Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan in their prime weighed two twenty five, and it was you know all muscle. And Matt Mitchell was there two thirty five, and it just wasn't the same body type. And I'm not trying to pick on the guy at all, you know. But by all accounts, he's he's a very nice dude. Um, but it just is what it is. But that being said, a big part of this offseason, one of the stories has been that he's been getting into better shape. He's been eating better, things like that. And I think that will help him in a lot of ways. It will help his endurance on the court. It will help his things like lateral movement um, and, and his quickness in general and his speed, all, all types of things. And it'll start there. And I think that will be the first step to getting back to a season like his freshman season. And I think it will get there. I think this year will be closer to his freshman season. I think there were other things too. You know, his role was a little bit different. 
his his sophomore season than what is his freshman season and it'll be a little bit different this year again but this year i i think he will be the second off the second option on offense so he will be the guy either if if Malachi Flynn is being smothered defensively or if Malachi is off the court Matt Mitchell will be the guy the offense runs through and i think that because he's a pretty solid all-around player Right, I don't think he's necessarily going to take facilitating responsibilities away from somebody like KJ or even Malachi, but he has shown some ability to do that in certain situations, but more so just, especially with him being in better shape, he'll still be as strong as he's always been. He'll just be able to move quicker, and so he'll still be able to bully his way through defenders the way he's always done, but his other things, he'll be able to to get around them if he needs to. He'll be able to hit that spin move that I know I love. I hope you guys love it too, where he goes and he takes one dribble to his right and spins to his left and hits the layup, or maybe it's the other way around. I don't know. I'm getting confused right now, but it doesn't matter. The point is he'll be able to hit that all the time, and he won't be tired at the end of the game when he's trying to do it. So that'll help his scoring. That was the big problem at the end of last year was nobody except for Devin could score. So that'll help his scoring. I'm hoping his shooting comes back. You know, Matt Mitchell in his in his freshman year, he shot about 36% from from deep, a little bit under that. Last year, it was closer to 33%, which is still, you know, solid enough to generate some gravity and especially with the three-point line being moved back, people will still have to respect it. They'll have to move out more. And so that 33 I think would still be enough to generate some driving lanes. But you want it to be more than 33%, especially because for for his career, he's taken 49% of his shots from behind the arc. And so, you know, if you're going to take half your shots from back there, you want it to be a pretty efficient shot. The other thing that would happen if his shot is better and is able to generate even even more gravity because it's falling more is Matt will be able to attack more closeouts. And that's the thing that I think he's best at, at least. You know, when he's is spotting up on the outside and somebody passes him the ball and the defender has to rotate to close out on him, he can hit that up fake and then drive around that first guy. And then he can hit that spin move on the second guy. And he's just, he's hyper efficient when he's attacking those closeouts. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's, it's like one and a half points per per time he does that, that he scores. It's really good. So that's the type of thing you want to see from Matt Mitchell. The more he can attack closeouts, the better he's going to be and the better it'll be for the team. I think defensively, he's probably the best perimeter defender the Aztecs have, especially if you know some of that weight has been shed and he's a little bit quicker. On the perimeter, I think he's probably the best perimeter defender they have, which isn't ideal because that's not to say he's necessarily great, but he's definitely solid. And I have him at negative uh, 0.52 on the defensive POE. And in a second, I can pull up his impact numbers as well. But he's he's a solid player. He's probably the best they have on the perimeter. And I don't think the coaches will necessarily say Matt Mitchell go guard the other team's best perimeter player. I don't think that's what it'll be. 
I think it will just be, you know, he'll guard his position and, and that's it. You know, I don't think it'll be anything super fancy like that because if you do have Matt going out and guarding point guards, I, I don't know if he's suited for that, but even if he could, now you have KJ guarding the other team's small forward and that's a recipe for disaster on like the size mismatch and everything. So that's not great. Here I got I got Matt Mitchell's impact numbers. His net defensive rating, the team was almost two and a half points better on defense when he was on the floor. So that's good. And the team was eight and a half points better overall when he was on the floor last season. So those are some good numbers. The the on-off numbers, like any other stat, they have their flaws, but overall it's it's not a bad tool to use. And eight and a half points, that's that's nothing to, to laugh at at all. That's a that's a good that's per one hundred possessions, so that's not over the course of a whole game. A whole game is normally seventy to eighty possessions. Um but that's still, you know, six points a game if he was to play the whole 40 minutes. We're getting too much into the weeds here. Um, but that's that. I, I Basically, the point about Matt is I'm predicting a bounce-back year. And I don't know if this is necessarily a hot take or not, but I think he should get some time playing the power forward this season. And that was something that last season when they tried it, I didn't like it. But the reason I didn't like it was because they had him try to play more of a traditional type of power forward where he's down in the post and he's posting up and doing things like that. And I thought that was bad because his strengths are being faster than bigs and being stronger than wings and guards because he is a bigger guy. And putting him down in the post removed that because now he's trying to out-tough, out-muscle an opposing power forward who is likely bigger than him. You know, there there are a lot of them are six eight to six ten and weigh about the same. And so it just it defeats the whole purpose. But if he can play the fat power forward and play a stretch four type of role, it'll be great because that puts him in those positions. You know, the other team's power forward is sagging into the paint to try and get those blocks to help out their center. And now Matt Mitchell's wide open in the corner or on the wing at the free throw line extended somewhere. You hit him. Now the power forward is closing out. He gets to up fake and attack that closeout, attack that center, get the other team's center into foul trouble. You know, only good things come from that. So I think if you use him as a stretch four, it it will be a devastating option for the Aztecs offense. And I think you can do it in spurts so that Matt Mitchell can also guard the other team's foreman. Like I said, you know, last year we saw him guard Yoli Childs, which was great. So he has the strength to be able to bang down low for at least short amounts of time. And so putting him at that stretch four spot, I don't think I would put him there, you know, all the time. I don't think he would start games there, maybe end games there, or maybe just, you know, end the half there with a big time offensive run. Just anytime you need a spark put Matt Mitchell in at the four and let, let the shots fly. It'll be dangerous. That I think does it for my Matt Mitchell preview. Next up, we will look at Yanni Wetzel. Once again, I hope I'm saying that right. Yanni is an interesting case because his synergy numbers 
just to start off with, you know, they weren't great. They were about average, both offensively and defensively. And that's, you know, it's not a bad thing. It's just, it's not great either, right? It's just, it's just average. His, his per game numbers and his advanced stats weren't great either. You know, they're, they're nothing special. You can look at his, his rebounding percentages. You can look at his shooting percentages. Any, any type of thing like that. Nothing really stands out. And so, you know, for me at least, that's normally the first thing I look at when I'm familiarizing myself with a new player. That being said, I know the coaches are very high on him. And so I wanted to make sure I did some justice when I went in to look at the tape. And the tape wasn't even necessarily the best source because there were only two games of him to be found and they were both against Tennessee, right? So he's at Vanderbilt, right? It was just last season and they're both against Tennessee. And in one game, Tennessee was ranked number one and the other one, Tennessee was ranked number five. And so he's playing a very high level of competition, right? And so some things that are going to happen that likely just make him look not very good. That being said, I still thought he looked pretty solid at the very least. It it was pointed out to me that before I even looked at the tape that Yanni fits more like a true power forward. But at Vanderbilt, they used him as a center a lot. And so playing out of position hurt what he did, right? He's, He's being asked to do a lot of things that maybe he shouldn't be asked to do. That being said, in in a lot of ways, Yanni kind of profiles to me almost like your typical uh, screen and roll big man. Just he also has the ability to pop. So that's the big difference. He can pop off the screen. That's not something I saw at Vanderbilt. That's not something they asked him to do hardly ever. I don't think he took very many three-point shots he did shoot pretty well. I think it was right around 35% at the school he was at before he transferred to Vanderbilt. And so, you know, he should have that ability. Now at Vanderbilt, he shot, let me look it up real quick. He shot 27%, a little under 26 and a half from deep at Vanderbilt. So that's not great, but you know, he does have those two years at the other school where he shot about 35. So that's something that should translate over, especially as he gets more opportunities and is able to to get into that rhythm. And as he knows, the coaches are going to ask him to do that type of thing. But he's a very good screen setter from what I saw. He laid out a couple screens that got shooters open, and that was great to see. I liked that on defense, he seemed very fundamentally sound down low and he got scored on a lot still i'm i'm hesitant to attribute that to anything at the point because like i said the tape i saw was against tennessee which was one of the better teams in the nation and so what i saw was him doing the right thing and still getting scored on he he did think you know he moved his feet well he stayed vertical he didn't foul he didn't jump when he was the primary defender which is a big thing for me that's one of the defensive fundamentals is if you're down low and you're the primary defender you're not supposed to jump because that's how you get 
you know, that's, that's how you commit fouls and you fall for pump fakes and stuff. You're supposed to let the secondary defender come over and jump to get the block. And, and when you're the primary, you're just supposed to stand with your hands high and contest like that. And that's what Yanni did. And so, you know, it's hard to say whether or not he got scored on because the competition was good or because of something else. Like maybe he has short arms. One of the announcers in one of the games said he has short arms. I I can't confirm that. I did ask one of the coaches at San Diego State. I'm not close with them or anything, but um, I did ask one of them if they took measurements at all, and they said they didn't take any measurements at the time that I asked. And I'm not gonna bother them about it. Like they have jobs to do. They don't need to. They don't need to entertain some fool fan like me. So, you know, regardless, it looked like he was doing the right thing. Also from the tape, I thought he looked better as a perimeter defender. Like it looked like he slid his feet well. It looked like he stayed vertical. He kept his hands up, all that type of stuff. And he was able to alter shots um, from, from guards that were driving or make them pass out, which was great. And so I think playing as a stretch four type will be very beneficial to him as he's playing more more players that rather than try and force their way through like an opposing center might will try and you know go around him a little bit more the way a perimeter player might I think that will be very beneficial for Yanni I think he can you know he can be a solid defender if somebody tries to force their way through but in the tape I saw it wasn't his best attribute that's I mean once again with that disclaimer it was just two games and those two games were against Tennessee regardless I digress um, but I mean, he was definitely solid defensively. He was solid offensively, especially if that shot comes around, then the Aztecs will be able to play a true four out system and have one of those four out players be six feet, 10 inches. And so it won't hurt them on rebounding. It won't hurt them defensively necessarily. Normally when you play four out, you have to go small ball. And so you're trading away things like defense and rebounding for speed and athleticism and skill and shooting is the big one. But it's a trade-off there. But with Yanni, you might be able to get that shooting and be able to keep that rebounding and that defensive length. And there was even one or two possessions specifically where I saw Yanni, I don't think he up-faked, but he just, he hit his defender with a crossover and got by him from behind the three-point line. And the center was able to rotate over and Yanni put up the shot. And I think he missed, but it it was nice to see that he could do that. You know, and against slightly lesser competition in the Mountain West, you know, he hits that crossover and gets by his guy and he's able to hit that shot next time. So that was encouraging to see. Overall, I think Yanni is a very solid player. I don't think he's the type of player that's going to win you a lot of games, but I definitely don't think he's the player that's going to lose you any games either. I think he's your classic type of glue guy type of player that is going to help the other players be better. He'll definitely be a great role model in the locker room and a guy who has a lot of experience and has been around and has played some of the best competition in the country and will just help make his teammates better in any way and be the type of guy that will do whatever it takes to help the team win. To round out the starting lineup, We'll take a look at Nathan Mensah, of course. He finished out the year as the starting center in his freshman season last year, 
and I don't see any reason to take him out of that spot. He he is uh, he, he's really good at at being that center. He you know since Skylar Spencer left, the Aztecs haven't had I don't think a truly dominant center. Um, you know they had like Valentine Azundu, and he was good, but he just he just wasn't the same as Skylar, and that's not that's not a a mark on him. It's just you know it's not the same and. You know, a couple years ago, they had Malik Pope playing center. And, and well, so they mixed in Malik Pope sometimes, and they had Cam Rooks sometimes. And both of those players are, are good players in their own right, but it just wasn't the same as Skylar Spencer, right? Nathan Mensah is the heir to the Skylar Spencer throne, I think. And I, I don't know if this qualifies as a hot take. I personally don't think it does, but to me... Nathan Mensah is the most important player on the Aztecs team for this upcoming season. And that might seem kind of counterintuitive because earlier I just said Malachi Flynn was the best player on the team. But Nathan Mensah is the most important player on the team because if Malachi Flynn were to get injured, there are other players on the team who could do the things that he does. Maybe not quite as well. You know, there would be a little bit of a drop-off, but, like, other players can score, other players can facilitate, other players can space the floor, other players can do these things. If Nathan Mensah were to get hurt, the entire Aztecs defense would fall apart. I've gone through this whole thing saying, you know, the, the two guards we have on tape and in the numbers, haven't been the best defensively. They've been average to below average, basically. And then you got Matt Mitchell and Yanni, who are, who are solid defensively, but not great. You know, Nathan Mentz is the linchpin that holds this defense together. The way he blocks shots, the way he alters shots, the way he slides his feet to get in front of players, everything defensively revolves around Nathan. And as the coaches are building up the defense for this season, it's going to start with Nathan and his abilities and then build out from there. You know, having Nathan, having a shot blocker and a shot alterer like that gives the Aztecs the ability to put a lot of pressure out on the perimeter because they know if they get beat, Nathan will be there. And so he, he mitigates a lot of mistakes. Having a player like that mitigates a lot of defensive mistakes that can happen. It... It causes some trouble because Nathan did have a little bit of foul trouble last season. You know, he would foul a little bit too much. Hopefully that can get cleaned up a little bit. That's that's the one part that is scary about being able to pressure on the perimeter a lot is, you know, you're funneling everything into Nathan, but then if he gets into foul trouble, that all falls apart. And the Aztecs do have other bigs. They got Nolan. They got Joel Mensah in the fold who got some spot minutes last year. They even, in certain circumstances, experimented with playing uh, a rope at the five, which I thought worked pretty well for what it was, but it's not something you want to do all the time. You know, Nathan is is the linchpin down there. Just just to put some numbers on it, Nathan, in his POE numbers for, for overall offense and defense last year, was 1.63 which is the seventh highest number I have going back to 2010-2011 season. And that so for all those players, each individual season they've had, that's the seventh 
highest. So counting his defense and his offense, he was the seventh most efficient player the Aztecs have had in the past decade, basically, as, as a freshman. And most of that comes from his defense. So that's huge. Here's another number that may be easier to relate to. The Aztecs, when Nathan Mensah was on the floor, were 25 points per 100 possessions better than when he was off the floor. When he was on the floor, the Aztecs outscored their opposition by 18 points per 100 possessions. When he got off the floor, the Aztecs got outscored by 7 points. That's how you get that 25-point number. That's a huge difference. Nobody else on the team last season came close to that. The closest was Matt Mitchell with his 8.5 points better on the court than off the court. And and granted, this doesn't have Malachi Flynn in these numbers because I don't have his... I Similar to KJ, I didn't go through all the play-by-plays and get his impact numbers from when he was at Washington State. But regardless, nobody else on the team last season came close. And that is why Nathan is the most important player to this team. Offensively, he doesn't have to do a whole lot. He, he needs to set screens. He needs to roll hard to the basket, generate some vertical gravity, which is, is just, you know, his defender will have to stay close to him because he's a lob threat, because he's 6'10", and he has, I think it's a 7'5 wingspan. And so his defender will have to stay close to him for that, which means his defender can't, uh, can't soft hedge and can't drop down and wait for the guard to come to him. It, it just changes what the defensive center can do which is huge, and that has offensive impact in itself, which is why the offense was, what do we got, 16 points better per 100 possessions when Nathan was on the floor than it was when he wasn't. It's, it's little things like that. So you have that. He just needs to set screens. He needs to roll to the basket hard. He needs to generate some vertical gravity and get putbacks, and that's all the points he needs, right? He, he averaged 5.6 points last year. That's fine. Like the Aztecs have so much scoring around him that, you know, if he needs it, feed him sometimes just to keep him engaged in the game. Some, some players are like that. It's something I've never understood, but in their defense, I've never played at that high of a level. So it's, it's fine. Um, so, I mean, definitely get him touches on the rolls, get him touches in places where he likes him, he can be super efficient as a lob threat and things like that. But his main impact is going to be defensively, where the Aztecs don't have a lot of other reliable players there. They have some, you know, average players, some some solid players. They have a lot of below average players defensively. And so Nathan is the most important. I cannot stress that enough, I don't think. It's just, it's, his, his plus minus for the season was 181. So the Aztecs outscored their opponents by 181 points last season when Nathan was on the floor out of 30 games or whatever it was. It's just, it's ridiculous. And Nathan's the type of guy, he's going to get better every year. He's been hurt this offseason. I believe, I'm just going off of memory, I believe it was a broken finger or something like that, but he should be ready by the start of the season. So that, I mean, is less than ideal because that'll hamper development a little bit. But even 
if he weren't to develop at all, if he were to play at the same level, he would still be the most important player on the team this season. And it just gets even more so if he is, if he has been able to develop and can continue to develop over the course of the year and come Mountain West tournament time, he's going to be just, it's, I, I can't even think of the words. It's just ridiculous. That being said, I think that's, that's all there is. He's going to lock down the paint on defense and even contest guards at the rim and he'll get his putbacks and his lobs and dump offs and things of that nature. And that'll be that. Real quick, just to recap the starters, they have a whole lot of offensive firepower between Fagan and Flynn and Mitchell. They're going to put up a lot of points. Nathan down low will lock things down. I am concerned about how the defense as a unit will work. I've said a couple times already that the coaches, you know, for the most part are defensive focused coaches. So I have faith that they'll be able to come up with some type of scheme to get the most out of these players and whatever limitations they have. But I think in terms of this year, the team will have more of an offensive focus and it will look different for a lot of fans, but it can also be pretty exciting as long as the defense doesn't fall off a cliff. You know, if it's at a similar uh, rate that it was last year, if it's at a similar level that it was last year, I think this team will be a team to be reckoned with. With the starting lineup out of the way, let's start looking at some bench players. The first player we'll look at is Jordan Shackle. Jordan, I think, has a legitimate case to be made that he should be a starter, and it's just a matter of other people came in that have more solid all-around games than he does. He did start a few games last year. He started 16, as a matter of fact. He started last season, and he was definitely the most improved player last season, at least in my in my opinion from what I saw. You know, you can look at some of his percentages. His overall field goal percentage went up by about 12 percentage points. His three-point percentage went up by about seven percentage points. So those are both some huge numbers. When you look at his impact numbers, the team was a little more than five points better with him on the floor than they were with him off the floor. So that's cool. That was mostly on the offensive side. The offense was seven and a half points better with him on the floor than it was with him off the floor. And that's mostly just due to his spacing. You know, he's not asked to set screens very often or anything like that. He mostly just spots up. He did start to take the ball to the hoop more, which I think was a good development. His his three-point attempt rate went down by 5%. But I think overall that's a good thing. He still takes three-quarters of his shots from behind the arc. But you just, in order to be able to keep the defense honest, being able to attack those closeouts and get inside and finish is a great thing to do. When you look at his efficiency numbers, he, um, shoot, I have to find him here. Where do you go? There he is. When you look at his efficiency numbers, his POE is 1.82, which is really good. And actually as a sophomore 
it qualifies for the fifth best season that I've tracked so far. So going back to 2010-2011 season. And that is mostly on the offensive end. 1.7 of those 1.82 points come from the offensive end. And then the rest is just on defense. So he's, in, in terms of efficiency, he's about average on defense. And he's just really efficient on offense. In terms of, of impact, he's a little bit less than average on defense. The, the, uh, the defense was 2.4 points worse with him on the floor than it was with him off the floor. So not great, but not, not unmanageable. And given his the offense that he brought, it was still worth it. And the Aztecs outscored their opponents by almost seven points per 100 possessions when he was on the floor. So definitely something that's worth it. The one thing that Shackle has that I don't know if anybody else on this team has is Shackle's probably the one player I would trust to come off of a screen to get a three-point shot off which is huge. If you have a player like that, it can open up your offense so much and you can design so many different types of plays that would be hard to otherwise. And for the most part, the Aztecs offense, when it comes to three-point shooting, is just somebody will get the ball inside close to the hoop and then pass it out to an open shooter. And that's great, but it's also a lot easier to defend overall. Whereas if you have somebody like Fagan or Malachi Flynn coming off of a pick and roll and then have Jordan Shackle doing a hammer screen on the weak side, that gets almost impossible to defend. And so it just opens up the offense a lot more. Malachi might be the only other player that I would trust to be able to do that. But I'm hoping that the coaches can have some, uh, or, or not have some, but but use some creativity when it comes to Jordan Shackle and drop plays where he's a screen setter because that's a really good way to get a shooter open is to have them set screens or have him come off of hammer screens or flare screens or even through an elevator screen. I know the coaches have used elevator screens in the past, and I think having a player like Jordan Shackle run through an elevator screen would be amazing and would just open up the the offense so much. So Jordan Shackle coming off the bench is going to be a huge offensive piece for the spacing and the shooting that he provides. The other key thing about Jordan Shackle is that he is one of the few players who can play that wing spot, at least to me, as more of a true wing. You know, Jordan probably fits best in that shooting guard type of role, but right now the wings on the team are Matt Mitchell is a wing, Jordan Shackle can fill in that spot, maybe a rope can play a little bit of wing, but then you run into some spacing issues, so it gets kind of tricky. Um, so Matt Mitchell and Jordan Shackle being the only players who can really effectively play that spot without having to give something major up like spacing or size makes Jordan Shackle very valuable off the bench as well. Next up is Trey Pulliam. Trey, I don't have hardly any numbers for. You can find some basic stuff off, off the internet, but once again, like the other transfers, I haven't gone through all the play-by-play data to figure out his impact numbers. And his stats don't even show up on Synergy. He was playing in a league that just Synergy doesn't track. And so I can't get his efficiency numbers either. 
so all I have really on Trey is the tape I saw, which I think was limited to two games as well. I had one game from Navarro, and then I managed to watch one game at the uh, the Swiss League recently. I, I got it on, on replay. And my thoughts on Trey were that he would make a pretty ideal six-man for a lot of teams. I don't necessarily know if that's the role he'll have on the Aztecs, but he's that type of player to me where he can come off the bench and lead a group. He's a pretty decent facilitator. In the tape I saw, I didn't think that was his go-to. He seemed more like a score-first type of guard. I have had people on Twitter disagree with that, and that's that's fine. Like I said, I've only seen the two games, and so if other people saw more live, um, he may very well be more of a pass-first guard. But to me, he just looked like a score-first guard coming off of the pick-and-rolls especially. And his passing was mostly limited to outside-in passing. And so he, I, I can remember one pass he had from where he was under the basket and passed out to a corner three-point shooter. But I think I only saw that once. And most of his passes were to a big man either that was rolling to the hoop or one that was parked in the dunker spot, which is good because the Aztecs really like to use that dunker spot with their big men. So it's something he'll be used to, but those passes are also harder to get the, the defense because the, that big man pass is such an efficient shot for that big man to take the defenses lock in on it. And so it's hard to get, but, you know, he's capable of making that pass. That's a beautiful thing. I haven't seen a whole lot on him that stands out defensively. You know, I mean, he made steals and he made rotations and he, he did all the normal stuff. But once again, just like the other two guards, it, it I didn't see anything that stood out. And, and that is just off those two games, like I said, but he didn't seem like like a defensive lockdown type of type of guy. He didn't seem like somebody you would want to build your perimeter defense around. He would just be there. So the guards in general, between KJ, between Malachi, between Trey, and if you want to count Jordan, between those four, the defense doesn't look great. They're all average to below average defenders. And for the most part, I'd probably consider them below average overall on defense so that can be a problem Trey is a pretty good shooter throughout his career it's been about 35 percent and just like with everybody else we'll have to see how that holds up with the new three-point line if that goes down at all or even if it goes up because there's more space so defenders have to close out farther that's a thing too I'm a little bit worried that some of these players that have shot well from deep before won't shoot as well with the three-point line farther back. But having players between Trey and Shackle, most every perimeter player really for the Aztecs has shot around 35% for their career or or more, which is really good. The Aztecs are just going to have a lot of shooting and Trey's going to add to that and Trey will bring some shot creation off the bench for if Malachi and or KJ are on the bench, really, if one of them is or if both of them are, it'll be nice to have that third guard who can run the pick and roll and create some some plays for his teammates. 
I mean, the last time that happened was two years ago when the Aztecs had Devin Watson, Trey Kell, and Jeremy Hemsley. And I think these guards offensively will be better than that trio was. Defensively, maybe not as good, but offensively will be better. And so that's very exciting. I think that's about all I have to say on Trey. I don't have much because I don't have as much of the numbers, but the tape I have seen has looked promising for sure. Now let's talk about Nolan Narain. Last year, I was very high on Nolan Narain, especially to start the season. You know, coming out of his sophomore year, a lot of his numbers looked really good. His efficiency was really good. And I just really liked what I saw. And I thought he would fit really well as more of a true center as opposed to how they ran Malik Pope at center a lot from the year before things like that. And so I was really high on Nolan and I thought he was in store for a big year. And what ended up happening was instead of him starting, he came off the bench, which was fine in and of itself. But the Aztecs got outscored by 4.6 points per 100 possessions when Nolan was on the floor. And that's, that's not a lot, you know, each game being 70 to 80 possessions, that means if he was out for the whole game, you would lose by, by three points. So it's it's not the end of the world, but it's not good. And really, for your backups, especially with the Aztecs' defensive deficiencies and everything this year, you what you want from a guy like Nolan is to just help the team stay where they are. So you want that number to be pretty close to zero. If it's higher than zero, that's awesome, but it's not super realistic to expect that of your backups. But you want it to be pretty close to zero. So, you know, no less than negative one. That way, you're not really getting outscored when that bench player is on the court. To Nolan's credit, you know, his defensive impact the team was 2.05 points per 100 possessions worse when Nolan was on the floor than when he was off the floor. So that's not a lot. It's still not that ideal range, but it's pretty good. The The real hurt was on the offensive side of the floor where they were 10 points worse per 100 possessions when Nolan was on the floor than when he was off the floor. And that's also reflected in his efficiency numbers you know, last season, his his DPOE, his, the defensive side, was really close to zero. It's 0.07. So not, not bad at all for a backup. His offensive numbers were negative 0.38, which also isn't necessarily terrible, but it's not good. And, you know, if you compare that to the year before, Nolan's offensive numbers were 0.87, which is... Good, you know, it's not a negative anymore like the last one was. And his POE overall was positive as opposed to last year it was negative. Something happened and he dropped off. And in looking at the tape, I noticed just little things. You know, little things like catching the ball with two hands before going up to dunk it. You know, because he was asked to do a lot of the same things last year as he was the year before. 
And it was just these little things, you know, taking his eye off the ball when it's coming in, things like that. And so his efficiency numbers on on putbacks, they were still pretty good last season. If he managed to get the offensive rebound, he was pretty good at putting it back and getting points. That was still pretty efficient. But two years ago, he was also efficient at the other typical big man things like rolling to the basket. He had been really efficient at that. And then last season, that fell off. And so if he can get little fundamental things like that back, what else? Things like he fell for a lot of pump fakes defensively last season. And so that would get him into foul trouble and that would get the other team free points. And it was just bad. So keeping his feet down and just contesting with his hands high, little things like that can really help him out. And I am hopeful that those little tweaks can be made. I haven't seen any tape of him like at Swish League. I don't go to the practices, obviously, so I can't make any prediction on whether that will happen. I haven't seen or heard anything to indicate that this season will necessarily be better, which is a little bit sad because I had such high hopes for him and I am still hopeful that that turnaround can be made and his impact and efficiency can get back to about average levels because if that happens, that's going to be huge for this team and that will make it so that if a player like Nathan was to get banged up a little bit and miss a couple games, this team can still stay above water if, if Nolan is playing average or above average kind of springboarding off of that one player who stands to benefit if Nolan isn't playing super well is Joel Mensah. Joel last season didn't get to play much, you know, unless it was a blowout more towards the end of the season, you know, like about halfway through the conference season, maybe Joel started to play at, at the very end of the first half. He would get a minute or two to play during each game, which which was good, you know. It just gave him a little bit of reps on the court, a little bit of game time speed, that type of thing. He only played in 15 games last season, so it was just good to get his feet wet a little bit. But should Nolan struggle for one reason or another, and I don't think anybody is wishing for that to happen at all, but should it happen, Joel would be the next person in line for that backup center spot, I would think. And, I mean, his numbers that I have, they're almost meaningless, even more so than, you know, there's just so much more noise with these numbers than there would be with any other number, just because the sample size is so small. But for what it was worth... The defense was almost nine and a half points better when Joel was on the floor than when he was off the floor. The offense was awful. The offense was 17 points worse per 100 possessions when Joel was on the floor. But like I said, like those numbers are, are both of them very likely exaggerated and so dependent on the situation because Joel didn't have that much time on the floor. He, uh, I can count, I... My estimation has him that he was on the floor for 126 possessions, give or take. So not very much. You know, you normally want, for these numbers to mean anything, you normally want them to be on the floor for about 500 possessions at least. But hopefully he's been staying in shape. Hopefully he's able to improve his game a lot 
and even if even if Nolan isn't struggling, Joel definitely has a chance to see some minutes this year. It will just be a matter of how much and and who's playing better. You know, it's it's very possible the coaches go with a little bit of a of a hot hand strategy in terms of who plays between Nolan and Joel. Because it would be nice to get Joel a little bit more time just for his development after Nolan graduates this year. But overall, for right now, if I if I had to make a prediction, I wouldn't predict Joel to see much more time than he saw last year. I would I would still think he's more that third center type of guy who comes in either if there's an injury or just in spot minutes here or there to give people breathers. I, I don't foresee a big role for him this season. I think going into his junior season, that's when it'll be time for him to step up. But for this upcoming season, I don't see a big role. Moving on from Joel, I think Agueka Rope would be the next person to go to. Agueka on the tape, his offense is very limited. He was often asked to do simple things like just park himself in the dunker spot, maybe set some screens, little things like that. But his offensive role was not was not very, um, I don't, I don't want to say important. There just wasn't a lot to it. It was very narrow. It was very limited. And I think that reflects his skill set some. I think overall he did have a good freshman year. And one of the highlights being that game, I believe it was against New Mexico, where he hit that three-quarter court shot to end the half. That was pretty cool. But obviously not something you can count on. Overall, his shooting wasn't super great throughout the year. I do have numbers for Agwek. They should be more uh, trustworthy. He had 696, approximately, possessions. So these numbers are more trustworthy than Joel's were. But the offense when Agwek was on the floor was about 13 points worse per 100 possessions. So not not great by any means. I think he, you know, he's been injured this offseason, which is the big thing. And so from from what I've heard, not from official sources or anything, but just like the scuttlebutt on Twitter and whatever, it seems like his rehab is going well, which is good, and that he should be ready, if not by the beginning of the season, then shortly thereafter, which is good. The problem is it hurts his development time, and so his role will probably be pretty similar to last year's. His impact will probably be pretty similar to last year's. So, you know, that offensive impact, I wouldn't expect that to get much better. His defensive impact was about one point better on defense when he was on the floor than when he was off the floor. And that's just, you know, a measure of he's a very athletic player. He's I think he's six six or six seven, but with a seven foot one inch wingspan. So that's huge. I think one of the key things that the Aztecs did to help them beat teams like Nevada last year was they would play Aguek at the five for spurts. They would play him at center. And I think that just helped them match up with the size and athleticism a little bit better. So that was huge. But overall, I don't think his role will be that big. I think it'll probably be pretty similar to last year's overall. The minutes might be a little bit more, a little bit less, but overall probably pretty similar. And 
there was a point earlier during the offseason where I said Agwek, just depending on his his rehab, it might be worth considering taking a redshirt season. It, you know, if it if it looked like he was going to miss the first half of the season or maybe more regardless, then that might be something to look into. And that would be on him and the coaches and everything. But from what the rumors are, that's not the case. And so, you know, if he would just miss even just the first couple games or whatever, like that's not a big deal. Like you don't, you don't need to red shirt for that. And he can definitely be a player that helps out this team, especially in certain situations like when he plays the five to match up with with teams that are playing small ball type of thing. But I just wanted to to clear that out for anybody who who may have read that piece that I put out and and was worried about about Agwek maybe red shirting. I don't think that will be a thing. Moving on, we're coming to the last few players here. Adam Seiko is one of the players we haven't looked at yet. Adam Seiko, if he's not already, he has the potential to be the best perimeter defender on this team, I think. It gets tricky because Seiko is one of the players who I think his minutes will be down this year because of the additions of KJ Fagan and Trey Pulliam. I think they're going to eat into his minute base, which already wasn't great to begin with. You know, Adam, he did play in 32 games. He averaged 12 minutes a game, which isn't, you know, it's nothing to be scoffed at. It's a good contribution. If I had to guess, I would say those minute per game numbers go down this season. Just because Seiko, to me, looks like the fifth guard in this rotation. You got KJ, you got Malachi, you got Shackle, you got Trey Pulliam. Those would be the first four guards. I'm pretty sure I'm not missing anybody. And then you would have Seiko after that. And Shackle, like I pointed out earlier, is a little bit different because he can also fill that wing spot. So maybe that helps Seiko get some minutes still. But overall, I think his his minutes will be limited. I think he may be used more as a defensive specialist, which is tough coming off the bench because normally if you have a guy like that, you want them to, to lock down the opponent's best perimeter player, but that player is going to be a starter. And so if your defensive specialist is coming off the bench and they're only getting 10 minutes or less a game, it's, the impact is going to be, is going to be limited. We we can we can look at last year's numbers real quickly. The offense last season was 14 points worse per 100 possessions when Adam was on the floor. So that's not very good at all. That's that's really bad. And I don't want to harp on the guy. He seems like a good kid, uh, but it's not great. Now to his credit, the defense was better, and. Adam Seiko is the only perimeter player who could say that in terms of in terms of the impact numbers. And there's other reasons because Jeremy Hemsley, I think everybody would agree, was a good defender, and his defensive impact numbers were not very good. So it just points to that these these numbers aren't perfect, right? But Adam Seiko, when he was on the floor, the defense was 
one and a quarter points better per 100 possessions. So it's not by a lot, but it is it is something. Looking at his efficiency numbers, his efficiency numbers are a little bit different. His offensive efficiency was positive, not by very much, 0.097, so really 0.1. Um, really close to average, but that was, I think, very much so buoyed by Seiko's shooting because Seiko shot 42.5% from deep, and that's only on one attempt per game, so that's a very small sample size. You know, it's 32 shot attempts, basically. Uh, so there's a lot of noise in that number. That That's a number that has a has a potential to drop if it if it stays there if he's still shooting like 42 and a half that's a great percentage if that's there the coaches need to find a way to get him on the floor and even going small and playing at him in a lineup let's say you have Malachi at the one Adam at the two Jordan at the three Mitchell at the four and then Nathan at the five, or, or I mean, shoot, even Nolan at the five. Just a big man, a Gwek at the five. Um, if he's shooting 42.5%, you have to find a way to get him on the floor because that just doesn't, that doesn't just provide spacing. Like, that's a hyper-efficient shot. You're, you're scoring over 1.2 points per possession on that shot. So that's why his CPOE numbers are you know a little bit above average his defensive efficiency numbers are a little bit below average so it's kind of an interesting flip there from the impact numbers it is what it is you know it's it's I've said a couple times already the stats are never perfect you use them as tools to highlight specific things but they oftentimes lack context too and so you really need to pair it with the tape in order to get the most out of them, which is what I try to do when I do my my YouTube videos. But that's that's Adam. I I mean my prediction for him this year would be like eight minutes a game, maybe, and he'll come out and he'll give some people a breather and he'll play some good defense and hit a three every once in a while. And that'll that'll be about it. He won't be asked to do a lot on offense. On defense it'll just be let's Let's contain let's contain the bleeding a little bit. Let's you know the starters have been given up a few points. Let's get you out there to help slow down the other team and then we can get on a little bit of a run here. Get a couple stops in order to in order to get some easier shots, that type of thing. But that's Adam. The last player on the roster this season to look at is the incoming freshman. Kashad Johnson, and I, I, I hope I'm saying that name right as well. He, I think, I only managed to find one game of him playing in high school. So, I mean, even more so than normal. The tape was super limited, and obviously I don't have any numbers because the high school games just aren't nearly as good as, at tracking this stuff, which makes sense. They don't have as much money. From what I saw in that one game, he seemed like he was pretty athletic. I think his listed height is 6'7", and so he's one of those players that could play the wing 
or even some power forward in some lineups, especially as as he bulks up. He looked a lot more like one of those typical Aztec recruits from the beginning of the decade where they are tall and they are long and they are athletic and you hope that they can manufacture points some way and they're really just going to smother you on defense. That's what Kashad looked like. I could see him potentially, because of his athleticism and his size, coming out similar to how I was talking about with Seiko and just, you know, we'll give you a few minutes here and just use your length and your athleticism and try to get some stops and get some easy buckets that way and break up the other team's run. I could see him doing that on offense. He's, he's been a lot of the times the, the, the offensive focus of his team, but he does a lot of like, they have him post up a lot, which makes sense because he's six, seven and he'll be playing against other high school kids that are six, three, six, four, six, five. And so he just has a size advantage, but in college, he's not going to have that as much. I did see him lead the break a few times. He would grab the rebound and he would go. So it was kind of cool that he has that. I don't know if the coaches will trust him with that yet, but it's something he did in high school and he was pretty good in the game. I saw it passing out of the break too, which was cool. He wasn't a great passer in the half court, but on the fast break, it was good. So I mean, that's another thing you could maybe ask him to do is come out and help out with rebounding on the defensive end and then hopefully get some fast break points and once again just try to stop a run. I wouldn't necessarily be surprised if he redshirted this year. I I don't think he will, but it just wouldn't surprise me because I don't see a whole lot of opportunities for minutes except for in blowouts. But that being said, just like a lot of the other players, I I don't know how their development's been going, anything like that. I just have the little bit of tape. I'm I'm definitely hoping that he can come out and make, at the very least, a defensive impact in, in some games because of that length and athleticism. But if he gets out, that that will be his role. He won't be asked to do very much offensively, especially with all the other weapons that are around him. He won't be needed to do much of anything. He'll either just be posted in the dunker spot or he'll be posted on the wing or in the corner somewhere and maybe can attack an occasional closeout or take an occasional three and that'll that'll be it. That does it for this one, guys. And and gals for that matter. I I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it makes your day a little bit smoother or your work a little bit. The time passes by faster or the commute a little bit better. I I don't live in Southern California anymore, but when I did, the commutes were awful. I loved many other aspects about it, but the commutes were bad. And so having these types of podcasts really made my days better. So hopefully it does that for, for some of you guys out there. This is something that I'm hoping to be able to do more often. So let me know what you think. And I'm I'm looking into investing a little bit more money into better hardware and things like that. So things sound better and a little bit more time into editing and making things sound better and, and getting cool sound effects and, and things like that. But I hope you enjoyed it. I'm super excited about the season coming up and I will likely hopefully be doing another episode soon just looking at the recruits that have signed recently so be on the lookout for that